supposedly John 3.16 has been passed as the most culturally famous verse in the Bible. I don't know how they measure such things, but supposedly the verse, judge not lest you be judged, is more well known. And that fits the spirit of the age, I think, an age in which all, all of our connectedness has yet left us with a, a desire to be free from the scrutiny of others. Don't judge me. Have you heard that? Give me some space to do what I want to do, to do what I think is right. Uh, we'd all rather not have people prying into our affairs. We like privacy. We don't want to be watched. We certainly don't want to be evaluated. So I guess it's not surprising that the idea of judgment has fallen on hard times. Churches don't tend to preach about it. Christians don't tend to talk about it. Now, that doesn't mean that as individuals we can give up on the idea of retributive justice. Personally, we need it because we're keenly aware of what it feels like when an injustice is done to us. I remember a, a very famous incident in my family growing up. My, my dad was a, a house painter. He was a, a private contractor. And he had gone to, to paint a, a brand new house, a new construction, very large house near our home. Uh, he had painted the whole house. And when he finished, the owner was suddenly uncontactable. It's like he dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, my dad drove out to the house. He actually took us as a whole family, drove out to the house. I think he wanted to show the guy that he has a family to feed. But the guy wouldn't answer his door. Well, it turns out that he had been in bankruptcy proceedings even before he started building the house. So he had the builders come and then the painters and all the people do the work. But then everything was tied up in bankruptcy court and none of the contractors would see anything. I still remember my parents talking. I still remember the dollar figure. So, so somewhere, somewhere, someone owes the Collins family $4,800. I mean, I must have been 10 years old. Famous injustice, which was galling to us. No, we as humans dare not give up on the idea of retributive justice. We're just uncomfortable when we are the ones who are under review. And that uncomfortableness comes right to the forefront when we think about God, and the idea of his judgment of us. Far more people believe in God than believe that he will judge them. So I was reading a survey in 2019 of Singaporeans, 80% uh, said they believe in a, a deity, a God, some kind. Only 56% of them, though, said that they thought there was an afterlife. And then only 33% said they thought there was a heaven and a hell. Then, interestingly, 10% said that they thought they would go to hell. But the numbers drop sharply as you think about judgment. 
I think for many who believe in God, they, they would prefer thinking of him only in positive terms, as a kind, a, a gracious, a benevolent deity, a God of love and a God of love only. I met a campus minister who told me that when he does evangelism with college students, he only uses the parable of the prodigal son. Because nowhere in that story is judgment mentioned. God is, is the one ready to invite and to embrace. And I suppose if you only zoom in to that one chapter of Scripture, that, that, that's what you see. But I wonder what is lost when we take that approach. Does God judge? If he does judge, why? How? How should we feel about it? I mean, is it like one of those family secrets that, that we'd just rather not talk about? We're studying through the book of Isaiah, and this morning we, we come to the end of his introduction. Chapters 1 through 5 are, are where he sets the stage, explains to us the situation in Israel in the 7th century B.C., and the situation is not good. We've gotten that so far. Isaiah calls Israel a, a sinful and a rebellious people who have forsaken the Lord. They were his children, but they've risen up against their father. Uh, he holds out the prospect of imminent judgment in the form of exile. But then on the other side of that, a remnant saved by grace. But this morning, it is for us to stare at this thing called judgment right in the eye. We believe all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So even a, a dark and sobering chapter like this one can do us much good. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 533. Welcome you to turn there. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please take that Bible home as a gift from our church to you. Our main idea of the passage is this. God is right to judge and judge rightly, he will. God is right to judge, and judge rightly, he will. We'll consider that in three points. First, God is right to judge. God is right to judge. Point number two will be God judges rightly. God judges rightly. And then third and finally, we'll consider God will judge. God will judge. Now, let me orient you to the chapter before we get into it. Uh, the first seven verses are known as the Song of the Vineyard. Isaiah the prophet and God himself give an overview of the bad situation in Israel and invites us to judge for ourselves what he's about to do in sending them into exile. Uh, the balance of the chapter, so verses 8 through 25, we, we get a series of woes which break down for us the sin of the people. You may want to let your eyes fall there. A series of six woes, verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, 
20, 21, 22. So six woes. And they're broken into first two and then four. And in between, we have some therefores. So you can see in verse 13 and 14, there are therefores. And then in verse 24 and 25, again, two therefores. The chapter then closes in verses 26 to 30 with a description of the coming judgment in the form of the Assyrian army. But let's consider our first point, God is right to judge, looking at verses 1 through 7. Let me read it. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. All right, in these first seven verses, we, we have a, a back and forth. Isaiah is speaking, verse 1 and 2, then, then in verse 7 again. And in between, the Lord himself speaks directly, verses 3 to 6. And Isaiah says that he's composing this as a song. It's a poem around this picture of a vineyard. I think the translation love song there is a bit misleading in English. Uh, this is not the kind of thing you're going to hear on Gold 905. This is not sounds good, feels good. Okay, this, this is, I mean, you may have read it and thought this doesn't sound like a love song. Well, Isaiah literally says, let me sing to my beloved a song of my beloved. Let me sing to my beloved a song of my beloved. I think he, he mainly has in view that he loves the Lord but also that in what follows, God shows his love for Israel. But let's think about this word picture of a vineyard that he uses. Grapes are, are the crop that grows best in Israel. To this day, Israel is a, is a world leader in the exporting of grapes. But it's a crop that demands an incredible amount of work. The, the land has to be cleared of other plants and, and the rocks and boulders that litter the Judean countryside. This might take a year of work just to clear the land. And you've got to buy the, the best vines. You have to lay them out and plant them. The cleared rocks can then be used to build rock walls and the, the watchtower he mentions, the wine vat. It's to keep out four-footed and two-footed thieves, the wall is. 
So two years of work, and then maybe by year three, you could settle down and, and be ready to look for a crop. But Isaiah likens all this work to what God has done for Israel. We studied Exodus last year. Uh, remember all that God did in bringing them out of slavery uh, in Egypt. How he, he led them to Mount Sinai and, and gave him his law. Told them how to love God and how to love each other. Uh, we, we summarized all of that as redeemed for worship. As we keep reading through the Old Testament, we see God providing for them through the wilderness wanderings. And then the conquest of the promised land. Israel was planted in a land flowing with milk and honey. So thinking about all of that, God speaks in verse 3 and invites all the people to judge, to render a verdict on his actions. What more was there to do for my vineyard? that I have not done in it. Did I leave anything undone? And we should say no. Then he asks a question. Why then? I looked for it to yield grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? Now that that word, wild grapes, is not a great translation. The the word actually has the root to stink. Uh, So some translators actually translate it stink fruit. Um, maybe a, a parallel for us is bad durian. I, I'm not an expert on durian in any way, shape, or form, but I've been told that you can cut open a durian and, and get a bad one. I don't know if that's happened to you before. I, I don't know how you would immediately know from the smell. I mean, some people would say it smells disagreeably to begin with. But these wild grapes are inedible. They're They're worthless. They render all the effort pointless. In verse 5, we, we read of what God says he will now do with his vineyard. As often happens in, in parables, the, the metaphor begins to evaporate at the end, and we're just staring at the reality. So we're not talking about grapes and vineyards. We're talking about people who were redeemed for worship. They didn't worship. So he says he's going to take away the hedge. He's going to break down the wall. He's going to let briars and thorns grow. It's not even going to rain. Then the prophet speaks in verse 7, and he makes it plain, what we've already gathered. The vineyard is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, there's a wordplay going on there in Hebrew. So justice and bloodshed rhyme, they sound alike, and so do righteousness and outcry. So Bible commentator Alec Matier suggests this. He looked looked for the lawful, but behold the awful. The rightful, but behold the frightful. And we should remember that those words justice and righteousness are really important words. They point to right practice on the one hand and right principles on the other. A, A righteous person has right principles and so acts justly with everyone around him. Taken together, these words form the concept of holiness, a a holiness of life and behavior that comes from obeying God. 
This song is supposed to have an emotional impact on us. The the prophet means for us to nod in agreement as we consider what God has done for them and his right expectation of fruit. And then the wrongness, not just of no fruit, but of, of bitter, stinky, disgusting fruit. These people had sinned against grace. So what does this mean for us? One of the challenges of interpreting the Old Testament prophets is it can feel like we're reading somebody else's mail. It's somebody else's problems. Do these things apply to us? Well, they do. We just need to make sure we apply them through the lens of the the new covenant that Jesus brought to light. When we do that, we find that we are similar in many ways to them. Like Israel, we're recipients of God's redeeming grace when we trust in Christ. We're brought out of slavery to sin, into his family. We, We receive a better gift than them in the form of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And like them, we're expected to bear good fruit. I mean, The New Testament is littered with language of Christians bearing good fruit. We we had that read to us from John 15. God chose us to go and bear fruit. I think meaning primarily there, fruit in the lives of, of other people around us who we, because we believe the gospel, we influence them for good. We encourage them spiritually. We we share the gospel with them if they don't know it. Fruit is talked about as a redeemed character, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And as we studied in Hebrews, fruit is also talked about in terms of our, our worship. The the fruit of lips that confess his name as we praise God. No, we are supposed to bear fruit as well. But when we think about what's going on here in Israel, there's something more serious for us to consider. You know, Paul in Romans 9 says that not all Israel was actually Israel. What he means to say there is that there were many nominal Israelites. Nominal just means in name, in name only. So there were, there were many people in Israel who were, yes, I'm an Israelite. Yes, we, we follow Yahweh. Yes, we, the, the Torah. Yeah, that's our religion. But they weren't living according to it at all. Didn't show up in their lives. There's no fruit Yahweh was not to them their beloved, like he was for Isaiah. They're wearing the team uniform, but they don't show up on game day. That's a sober reality check for us, isn't it, friends? You know, we we try to be really clear here about the good news of Jesus Christ, that you and I don't need to try to earn our salvation. That's pointless to try to do anyway. There's no way that you or I, by by doing a lot of good things, 
can meet God's perfect standard of holiness. That's not going to work. That's why it's wonderful news. It's good news that Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived but didn't. And then died a death that we deserve to die. And that we're, we're saved by faith alone in what Christ has done. But friends, we need to be equally clear that saving faith is never alone. When a person is uninterested in the bride of Christ, they should stop pretending that they're interested in Christ himself. That doesn't follow. If a man says, yeah, I love my wife, but he never wants to spend time with her. He doesn't talk to her. Acts like she isn't there. We start to go, yeah, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it just doesn't look like that. Friends, nominal Christianity is deadly. If you call yourself a believer, a Christian, fruit should show up in your life. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm not saying you should be perfect. None of us are this side of heaven. We will struggle with indwelling sin until we die. But that's just it. We should struggle. We should strive for holiness. We, we should press on to know the Lord. Let me speak for a moment to children in our midst. I'm speaking to you if you're, you're growing up in a family that takes you to church, that has brought you here. And, and maybe to many of you who, who might have grown up in the church. You need to realize that that is both an incredible blessing and a danger. The blessing is that from a young age, you get to hear the words of eternal life. And you're being taught the scriptures, which can give you a relationship with God and a foundation for all of life and eternity. That is a wonderful blessing and gift. Now, why would that be a danger too? Well, the danger is that you could start to think that because you're around this stuff, that it somehow sinks into you by osmosis. That it just kind of goes through your, the membrane of your skin and sinks in. That's not how it works. You stand before the Lord as an individual. Uh, your, your parents have a, a role to play in teaching you and, and modeling for you. Yes, that's true. But you have to make an individual decision to trust in the Lord, to believe the good news of the gospel, and then that should show up in your life. If that's not true for you, if, if you know, when we gather around the Word, if this is just like the most boring 40 minutes of the week to you, then you should go home this afternoon and get away from everybody else and just get down on your knees and ask the Lord, to change your heart, to, to show you the truth of these things and why they matter. You know, e even if you aren't a Christian, may maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're a free thinker or, or you would say you, you just don't believe in Christianity, you're, a still, you're still a recipient of grace, aren't you? Would you acknowledge that? I mean, you didn't make yourself you're here not because of your own 
decision. Somebody made you. you. You have a maker. And you don't really sustain yourself. I mean, you may think of it that way by working and making money and buying stuff. But, but God has to provide all sorts of things. I mean, rain and sunshine and a thousand other things just to keep you alive. You're a recipient of all that grace. Doesn't God have the right to expect from you thankfulness and a desire to know what he wants from you? The song of the vineyard here, these first seven verses, speak loud and clear to us that God is right to judge those who sin against grace. But I want us to press on and think secondly about how he judges. So point number two, God judges rightly. Let's read verses 8 through 25. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one, but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture. And nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with cart ropes. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. All right, we'll stop there. Woes and therefores, 
Uh, let's consider the woes and the therefores. I want you to see a progression here. So the first woe is in verse 8. It's a greedy hoarding of resources, specifically property here, joining house to house, adding field to field until there is no room. The, the rich are pictured as buying up houses and land, crying, crowding out the poor. Uh, these rich landowners are then pictured as living alone on vast estates. This was specifically what God told them not to do. So land ownership in Israel was protected by, by laws of the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, where even who, people who fell into hard times and, and, and into debt could, could get back their land. But the greed of the people has taken over. It's become a hoarding, which is the very opposite of stewardship. You know, the Bible doesn't view wealth as bad just as dangerous. When, when company resources are, are put into your hands, you know you've got to be really careful with them because they're not yours. You're accountable to, to use them for, for what they were budgeted for. That's a stewardship. Well, that's the way God views money and resources in our hands. We, we don't have private resources or personal resources in that sense. We're stewards of God's money, God's stuff. And we've got to be really careful because the ungodly around us simply amass resources for their own ends, for, for pride and for pleasure and for power. Well, Israel, see it, has become just like the world here, hoarding resources. Woe number two is in verse 11, self-indulgence or hedonism. People have given themselves to a, a pursuit of pleasure. They're described as eating and drinking alcohol and, and music. Again, none of those things are bad in themselves, but, but when they become the pursuit of someone, they, they consume them. They are consuming. They, they warp a person into becoming a slave of their own appetites. It's what they're living for. Again, we are warned here to be careful. The, the fallen human heart doesn't receive some pleasure as a, like a good gift, a, a good meal, a good drink. It demands more and more, even as the receding horizon of pleasure disappears from them. I think we should say a word here about alcohol. A Christian should never get drunk. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 is really clear on that. Uh, getting drunk is a sinful giving over control of yourself to the flesh instead of to the spirit. And if you find yourself unable to control yourself as it comes to alcohol, then part of your discipleship is to say, well, I'm just not going to drink. Because it matters more to me to obey the Lord. But these first two, we, we have hoarding and hedonism. We have greed and we have self-indulgence. The first two woes. Let's skip down to the next woe in verse 18. I want you to notice two things. One is that we're going to turn from the outward sins to inward 
sins. We're, we're getting the thoughts behind the sin. And also the pace picks up. There are going to be rapid fire woes here. So woe number three is hypocrisy. We see a person bound to their sin, drawing iniquity with cords and sin as with cart ropes. It shows how tied they are to their sin. But remember, these are professing believers. So, so that's why he says there um, to draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. What's the falsehood? There's a deceit because as they're saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm tied to this sin, they, they have to start living a double life. There's a hypocrisy. I think their words in verse 19 about, oh, let him be quick, let him speed to his work. They're actually starting to question whether God is going to judge them at all. I think they're starting to doubt it. Let him show up and judge me. That's what they think. Woe number four. So hypocrisy has to lead to something. Well, it leads to a redefinition of right and wrong. Verse 20. Now the person must call evil good and good evil. In modern times, we see this show up most clearly in the so-called sexual revolution, where in movies and music and now all sorts of videos, sexual promiscuity and seduction and throwing off all forms of, of restraint and commitment in marriage, it, it becomes first winked at. I mean, that, that's an earlier generation. Then it became promoted. And now it's gloried in. I want you to see that the, the progression here is that morality and theology are being rewritten to suit desire. I mean, that, that's why Isaiah began with the, the greed and the self-indulgence. I mean, I think as people, we, we like to think of ourselves as rational beings. But we so rarely are. Friends, don't trust yourself to write theology and morality. You're, you're not capable of the objectivity. You're certainly not capable of the holiness it takes to do it. I had a friend who... Uh, he served in, in overseas with us for many, many years. And he started down a pathway of, of rewriting his theology. And while he was doing it, he just, he would not talk to me. Because he knew what he was doing and I knew what he was doing. And he knew that I knew what he was doing. I mean, I've, I've got hundreds of unanswered text messages. Because I would just grab him and say, what do you, do you know that you just want to do this thing? You give this philosophical mumbo-jumbo you give to other people. Don't give it to me. You know what you're doing. Driven by your desires. Wanted to leave his family. So he did. Woe number five. Verse 21. The enthronement of self. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is the final step of the progression. The self is enthroned at the center of all reality. There's no longer any need for wisdom from God. The fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, has been eclipsed by the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's just that it turns out it isn't very modern at all. 
Woe number six is descriptive. What we now have is Vanity Fair. Heroes at drinking, valiant in mixing strong drink. It's ironic to use those words hero and valiant. They they might have been applied to David and Jonathan who trusted the Lord in battle to accomplish the Lord's purposes. But, But here, they're described as the person behind the bar. They're heroes at happy hour. And this plays out in their relationships. So those who might look to them for assistance are ignored or deprived of what is right. These people do what doesn't matter, and they don't do what does. So how does God deal with them? I mean, we've we've walked through that progression. It's not a happy thing to do, but we've seen it. What does God think? Turn from the woes to the therefores. And what we see there is that God deals with them according to their sin. He judges them rightly. So look back at verse 9. That, that vast estate is pictured as empty of inhabitants now. So, so the, the greedy person who has amassed all of this real, real estate, now they have to survive on a land where crops don't have a positive yield. Uh, these measurements go down 90%. So, so an ephah is 10% of a homer. So they're taking this much seed, and then when they harvest, they get this much out of it. Verse 13, that, that hedonist who lived for his appetites now goes hungry and thirsty. Verse 14, Sheol, the realm of the dead, is, is pictured as the one who's greedily opening its mouth to consume the rich revelers. Verse 15 and 16, God explains his judgment in terms of the humiliation of the pride of man. And in so doing, he exalts his justice, shows himself as holy, righteousness. That's after the first group of woes. After the second group of woes, two more therefores, and God is very clear here. They've rejected the law of the Lord. They've despised his word. And so he will judge. Judgment will be as a fire burns. His anger is kindled. His hand is stretched out against them. We have the image of an earthquake. There are dead bodies lying in the streets. And all of this is pointing them towards the exile to come. When we say that God judges rightly, what we mean is that the punishment fits the crime. We said in the first part that God is right to judge. We're meant to see here that he judges rightly. What what should God do with the person who rejects his rule, sets up a rebellious kingdom? What should God do with the person who makes off with stolen goods, takes the company's resources and does something else with them? What should God do to the one who says, yeah, I know that God has a law that he's revealed. I just don't care that much. My desires are more important. What should God do? He's right to judge. He judges rightly. 
The final section speaks of the certainty of what is to come. Let's consider point three. God will judge. Verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the end, behold, darkness, distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. It's a description of the Assyrian army. Assyria was the dominant superpower of the day, 900 to 600 B.C. or thereabouts. The most powerful army in the world. They had some new military developments. First time in history, they, they organized military units with, with light, medium, and heavy armor and, and armament together. So their units of a 1,000 had foot soldiers, verse 27. You can see their, their sandals and their waistband talk about. And then archers, verse 28a. And then cavalry with chariots. Verse 28b. There was the first, they were the first army to use cavalry on a, on a large scale. The Greeks and the Romans would later perfect it. Their siege warfare techniques were highly developed. And they assembled the largest armies that had ever been assembled. Hundreds of thousands of troops together. They were the scourge of the ancient world, feared, pictured like a a roaring lion here. And they were unstoppable. It says there in verse 29, none can rescue. Verse 30 pictures the hopelessness that accompanies their coming. And yet, do you notice how Isaiah framed the whole description? He frames it so that you can see that Assyria is not the point at all. Who raises a signal for them to come? Okay, come on. Actually, whistles. Come on. Like like whistling for a dog. Assyria is not the point. It's God. I was thinking recently about how modern communication technologies gives us unprecedented access to any conflict that's happening anywhere in the world, really. So if you're a consumer of news, it can feel overwhelming, can it? We not only hear about tensions on the Korean Peninsula, we can watch a missile launch. In the Ukraine conflict, both sides are putting out videos to show how powerful they are. We can not just hear, but we can see things that are happening in Gaza things that are happening in Yemen, anywhere in the world, fearsome stuff. And we should be concerned about them all. We should pray about them all. We should pray for peace. 
We should pray for Christians in difficult places that are enduring terrible things even now. We should pray for the spread of the gospel. That's one of the reasons why in our pastoral prayer every week we try to pray for a different place in the world to expand our hearts for what's happening there. But it is so important for you and I to never forget that geopolitics is under the control of a sovereign God. He hasn't lost control of planet Earth. Not for a moment. Assyria was the superpower of its day. Think about all the so-called superpowers that would follow. Greece, Rome, China, Mongolia, Russia, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, the United States of America. They all take a turn on the stage. But the nations are as a drop in the bucket, Isaiah will say. They are as nothing to God. They're minor characters on the grand stage of history. But God is the architect of history. Assyria is the tool, but God is the judge. And what's clear here is that unrepentant Israel has to deal with him. When you and I read this, uh, we're meant to stop and ponder what we believe to be most real this morning. Uh, what is most true? Is God the great unseen reality to you this morning? Are you a, a God-fearing man? A God-fearing woman? Are you a God-fearing boy or a God-fearing girl? Is his evaluation, his judgment, a certainty in your mind? You know, God's retributive justice could be an in-the-moment intervention in your life. It could be. <clears throat> that was the case with Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. They dropped dead on the spot. Could be. But it will certainly be an end-of-life reality. The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The people of Isaiah's day faced the, the temporal fire of God's anger in the exile. You and I face the danger <clears throat> of the eternal fire that is reserved for the enemies of God. That, that's not a scare tactic of overzealous preachers. That's the plain revelation of the Word of God. And we dare not despise it as the people here despise the Word of God. Friends, the application of this text has to be to flee the wrath that is to come. To run away from the consequences of sin to the cross of Jesus Christ. That has to be the application here. To find a shelter, a place where justice and mercy meet. And where, where you and I can be saved. We, we use that word saved and we can use it so lightly, but we mean it as a very real thing. 
God says it's the only shelter to trust in Jesus Christ and to turn from our sin. But it is a shelter. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The the good news of Jesus Christ is that the repentance and faith that are an option for us, they lead to forgiveness and to pardon and to new spiritual life that will bear good spiritual fruit. But we have to consider where we are. God asks us to consider where we are, what kind of land we are, what kind of soil we are. Let us remember the admonition for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. God is right to judge, and he will judge rightly. Let every person examine themselves. Let's pray.